I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours. I hope you're healthy and uh, happy. I'm Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of discussions on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome to the show Ann Applebaum. Ann is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian writing on Russia. She's also a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins Sice and the Agora Institute, where she co-directs ARENA, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda, largely focused, I gather, on Russia. I could go on and on and on. But suffice to say that Anne is an extraordinary author, journalist, and analyst of both the headlines and the trend lines of many things Russia, European, particularly in the democracy space. Anne uh, Applebaum, welcome to Carnegie Next. So much to discuss, so little time. <laughs> Thank you very much. There's always too little time. I thought we'd, uh, before we drill down on the granular, we might ascend to a kind of higher altitude to get your views from 30,000 feet on the war, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Suffice to say, as we enter the second year of Putin's invasion, we seem to be in for a conflict of some duration. Paul Post of the University of Chicago, who has analyzed wars since 1815, argues that the median duration of a war is about three months. We're now triple that number, and more and more. And it seems to me very little prospect of any uh, clear ending. No side appears to be able to or willing to impose its will on the other. Sanctions haven't diminished Putin's capacity or desire to wage war. Ukraine has no choice but to fight on and sees no gain, frankly, backed up by the world's finest military to stop fighting. And right now there's zero chance of any diplomatic pathway. So I guess initially, and I'm not asking you to play military analyst, but where do you think we are in this conflict and where where are we going? Specifically, I'd like your thoughts on the Biden administration's approach um, over the last year plus. So you've thrown a lot of different things into the mix all at once. Let me try and pick them apart a little bit. Um, so you're right. We are now in a stage of war of attrition. Um, we had some big Ukrainian gains um, last, you know, last fall, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're now, we're now essentially waiting for the next phase of the war to begin, which we assume will be the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, the Ukrainians have kept back troops. They're being trained outside the country. Um, they are, are, they are being given new weapons. They're learning how to use them and how to work with other, you know, how to, how to, how to use them together with the other, other, um, armor and artillery that they already have. Um, they are, you know, very much hoping in the next six months to change the nature of the war uh, and to make it more dynamic. But, you know, that depends on a lot of things, including us. I mean, it depends on how much we're able to help them and willing to help them, um, help them, help them win. I mean, I think part of the difficulty, as you just said, is that, um, you know, what actually needs to happen in order for the war to really end. And by end, I don't mean if we get a ceasefire for six months 
you know, or even six years, and then the war starts again after Russia rearms. Um, what really has to happen is there needs to be a kind of political change in Russia, by which I do not mean regime change, and I don't even necessarily mean that Putin has to disappear. Um, there has to be the kind of change that took place in France in the early 1960s when they decided that the war in Algeria was no longer worth fighting, or Britain in the early 20th century when they decided that um, Ireland was not, in fact, part of Great Britain after all. Um, and that kind of change, the understanding that Ukraine is an independent country, that it has a right to exist, um, has to has to um, has to has to somehow capture the, the the Russian elite at the very least, um, and that's why the um, the the politics, um, the way in which we talk about the war, and the way in which we aid Ukraine or donate Ukraine, also make a difference into how the war ends. In other words, the Russians have to understand that they have made a mistake, that they can't win. And by winning, they're still defining winning as the destruction of Ukraine and the occupation of Kiev. And they haven't changed formally what, what they aim to do. Um, and so we, you, you know, we have to, the, you know, the, to, the, to the degree to which we um, demonstrate our doubt about whether Ukraine can win or whether our, you know, former president, maybe even future president, um, you know, every time he goes on television and says he doesn't care about Ukraine or he doesn't mind who wins or the war is terrible and just needs to stop, you know, no matter what the outcome, every time that happens, that gives Russia another, you know, another you know, few months to say, right, OK, if we just keep going, we just need to wait until there's different leadership in the United States. And then and then we can do what we want, which is to essentially take over Ukraine and destroy Ukraine. So that's the. That's where we are right now. I mean, I, I, it's one of the reasons why I think the United States should be I, I, more ambitious in the ways it thinks about Ukraine and helps Ukraine. Um, you asked me to assess the Biden administration. I mean, in a way, you know, if you step back from it, what they've done is pretty miraculous. I mean, the the almost nothing that's happened in the last year was predictable a year ago. I mean, that the U.S. would be supporting Ukraine at this level, that we would give them the kinds of weapons that we're giving them. Um, that they would be so good at using them even. Um, you know, people had very low estimates of what the Ukrainian army was capable of, and a lot of those proved to be wrong. Um, Ukrainian army has also innovated in various ways, you know, their use of drone technology, their use of, um, of soft targeting software, some of which they invent themselves, has also been, um, has been pretty... Um, you know, pretty remarkable. And so none of that existed before. And so we are already in a realm where, you know, nothing, nothing that we predicted has happened. And so um, the only thing I would say about the Biden administration is I, I hope they, they understand that, you know, we, the, the predictability of what's going to happen in the next year is also under in doubt. Um, there are a lot of, you know, there could be, there are a lot of political changes we should anticipate and be prepared for. Um, in addition to, you know, making assumptions about this war based on previous wars, I think is risky because there's so many odd and strange elements to it. Let's apply the Goldilocks principle. Um, let me ask you directly uh, before we move move from the administration. Uh, on the military side, has the administration been been doing too much, not enough, or trying to find a balance between the two? 
So I think their understanding is that they've been trying to find a balance. Um, you know, Biden has made some clear rules, which are not a secret. You know, there will be no U.S. troops in Ukraine, um, and he wants to avoid an, a conflict, direct conflict between NATO and Russia. And he's made that clear, and that's been part of the you know understanding from the beginning. And I think everybody understands why those are good rules, um, and nobody questions them. I mean, when you get into the specifics of which weapons they've let the Ukrainians have, you know, should they be given this long-range ammunition that would make it easier to hit targets behind the front lines? You know, should they be given airplanes? Um, then we could have an argument about whether they've been overly cautious. I mean, the uh, I was in Ukraine about three weeks ago, and the Ukrainian defense minister said to us, I was with the editor of the Atlantic, he said, you know, the conversation always goes, you know, can we have this weapon? And then the Americans say, no, I'm sorry, that's impossible. And then two months later, it turns out to be possible. Can we have this weapon? No, sorry, that's impossible. And then two months later, it turns out to be possible. If some of those decisions had been made earlier, um, if they had access to, um, you know, to better and more accurate weapons earlier, if they had more ammunition earlier, we might already be in a different place in the war. And so there is, there is some caution about specific, um, some of the specific, you know, specific military decisions um, that I think has been, you know, turns out to have been, um, you know, um, maybe even quite damaging. Um, but, but overall, I think the, the 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 big the big parameter, you know, the big picture, you know, Biden's caution about the U.S. involvement and Biden's caution about NATO involvement, direct NATO involvement, I think, you know, are right for you know for the moment. Right. Some some would argue former military um, senior commanders and generals would would argue basically that we are far too constrained. Yes. Uh, in, in terms of the kind of weapon systems that we're providing, well, let me um, let me quote one of your former colleagues at the Post, David Ignatius, because I think he kind of sums up the what I would call the sort of investment trap or conundrum that we're in. He says that that uh, we can't and won't give Ukraine everything it needs to take back all of its territory for fear of an escalation with Russia. We can't agree to a ceasefire or a deal right, that would validate Putin's gains. The hope is somehow that Ukrainian gains on the ground would change the nature of the conflict and persuade Putin, perhaps not of everything you would like to see, but persuade him to see that he has no alternative uh, but to come to the negotiating table. I interviewed uh, Victoria Newland a month or so ago, and the logic of the administration seems pretty clear. You, quote, tilt the battlefield in Ukraine's favor, which then leaves Vladimir Putin with no choice other than to recognize that he's failed and enter negotiations. Now, I don't know. Help me unpack this. Um, I'm skeptical, frankly, that Putin's reaction to Ukrainian gains will be, oh, I failed. Uh, I now have to settle. I, I So when I say investment trap, we really haven't defined clearly what we want to see. We, we know we want to see the Russians out of Donbass and Crimea. The question is whether or not that is a realistic military objective as we move forward. Well, it's realistic if we want, I mean, have we, are we planning to achieve the you know, to help the Ukrainians take back Donbass and Crimea? I, I'm not sure that we have. I think you're right. I mean, so, you know, because I mean, 
That is, you know, if you ask the Ukrainians what does victory mean, it's not a hard question. You know, it's not it doesn't require a lot of you know foreign policy knowledge or you know um, debate. It, it means three things essentially. First of all, it means taking back all of their territory, meaning Donbas and and um, and Crimea, because that those are the only international borders that they have. Uh, in my view, Crimea is especially important because. Crimea right now functions as a kind of, you know, hostile aircraft carrier attached to the bottom of Ukraine. And it was through the militarization of Crimea that they were able to um, attack and occupy southern Ukraine, um, you know, last last year. Um, uh, you know, so, you know so, so, so that, you know, for them, that's that's obvious. You know, second thing that's obvious is that the war should end with some kind of guarantee that it won't start again. You know, there needs to be some, you know, Ukraine needs to be part of some kind of military pact. Um, it has to have some kind of security guarantees so that, you know, Russia isn't just lobbing missiles over the border all the time as it does now. And thirdly, the Ukrainians want some kind of justice. So that could be, could take a lot of different forms, but some compensation for the lost lives, for the damaged property, for the um, you know, the, 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 the deliberate attacks on civilians, you know, the hospitals and so on. I mean, you know, it's that we can then argue about what, what that should be. And so they don't find that hard. And, and the, of course, the danger is that if the war ends um, without those things, you know, if Russia is, remains in possession of Ukrainian land or territory, um, there are some consequences to that one of them is that they use that territory to launch the war again in five years. Um, and the other is that the Ukrainian citizens who live in that territory um, are subject to repression, rape, murder, you know, at the very, you know, at the worst, or just loss of their identities. And there aren't that many Ukrainian governments that could stay in power and allow that to happen. So, so you know, you know, Ukraine has politics too, and and you know, there's no Ukrainian president who can say, "I don't care what happens to people under Russian occupation." And so that that's why the the territory, the desire for Ukraine to take back its territory, is not some kind of you know, oh, we need the land, you know, because we're greedy for land, or because you know, it's it's not about the it's not about the physical space. It's about the people who live there, um, and it's about the the precedent of Russia being allowed to. Um, to, 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 to capture territory. I mean, there could have been a scenario some years ago, I think maybe the Zelensky administration was even looking at, you know, trading land for peace. You know, there were that, that could have been a possibility before this war, but I don't think now it is because now the Ukrainians understand that any concession they make to Russia is interpreted as weakness. And it, it's a, it's the next, it's the stage to the next Russian attack. Right. And this is one of the problems with the sort of attritional war that we're in. I mean, the tabletop exercises that the New York Times reported seem to impress on the Ukrainians that regaining all of Donbass and, and Crimea in the near term is not going to be possible. I know you've written and feel very strongly about the fact that a Ukrainian victory is necessary, which means driving every Russian occupying and out of the Donbass and, and out of Crimea. I just wonder. Can, can I just interrupt to say that when um, a Ukrainian friend of mine, who's a former senior politician, um, said to me a couple of weeks ago, he said, the Americans never believe we can do anything until we do it. So just remember that. Right. And I was just going to add that we've consistently underestimated them. Um, 
uh, well, it'll be fascinating to see exactly what the counteroffensive, swing counteroffensive, actually can achieve. You you were in Ukraine three weeks ago. What impressed you the most about what you saw and um, what you heard? We we went to the east. We went to Kherson, and we were on in different parts of the front line in that in that part of Ukraine. Um, and I think what's 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 most impressive. And, and what I think is the, is the thing that makes Ukraine, um, it's very hard to, to understand how the Ukrainian army works, but what's most impressive is the huge range of skills and people and organizations that, 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 that are in, you know, in the army. The army is a real citizen's army. So parts of it are like, you know, grandfathers defending their villages and parts of it are, you know, Ukrainian tech guys from all over the world working in secret drone workshops, you know, building brand new weapons that, you know, have never been used before. Um, and, and you have this, and you have plus this kind of army of volunteers who support the military in different ways, um, in a way that's pretty unprecedented. And some of that is to make up for the ongoing flaws. I mean, Ukraine is still, the Ukrainian army is still evolving from what it used to be, you know, from what it used to be a Soviet army. Um, and so some of it is that, but some of it is, you know, the relationship between the army and the population is, um, I mean, it's almost like it feels more like a partisan war than a formal war of the kind Americans have got used to, you know, where American soldiers go overseas somewhere and fight far away. You know, this is a war that's taking place like in the suburbs of cities. <laughs> um, and and the military is in the, you know, is mixed in with the population. Um and, you know, and so the and so trying to understand how it works is hard. I mean, that, you know, there are different units of the Ukrainian army that are semi independent in a way that we also would couldn't imagine in the U.S. You know, that there is a unit with its own commander and it has some of its own funding um, and it does some of its own things. Of course, it works together with the army and it's part of the whole system. But, you know, but that that way of thinking about an army, you know, that it's a kind of grassroots network. Um, isn't one that we're used to. Um, and so that th that to me was the most, I mean, we also met Zelensky and we met, um, we met the, you know, the, the defense minister and others, but, but meeting, seeing how the army works on the ground was for me the most interesting. I mean, I, it had been described to me sort of, I knew about it intellectually, but actually meeting it was fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. I want to talk about Zelensky. I was thinking the other day about leadership. Um, born, made, product of circumstances. Marx, writing in the 19th century, so forgive me here, to get the quote right, basically argued that men make history, but rarely as they please. Anybody looking at the last year plus who believed that humans don't exercise an extraordinary influence on the course of historical events um, needs to rethink that. One man invades, decides to invade Ukraine and extinguish it as a country. Another man, seemingly um, unanticipated, rises to the challenge to defend it. And I wondered, you and Jeffrey Goldberg, I think, interviewed Zelensky not long ago, but you, you recently met him. What? Yeah, we, we, we've interviewed him twice. We did once once in April last year and, and also just now, about three weeks ago. Yeah. What's your impression, number one? And what is, what is it you think that we don't? understand about him so first of all i mean the, the 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 idea that it's him by himself i think is 
wrong. I mean, it's of course, it's nice to be able to personalize the country and give, you know, Ukraine, which is fairly unknown to most Americans now has a kind of face in the form of, of Zelensky. I mean, I think he he's, you know, he's genuinely representative of this kind of grassroots army, you know, the citizens army. And one of the, you know, for example, why does he dress the way he does? Why does he wear, you know, military fatigues and t-shirts? Um, that's because he's dressed as member of the territorial army. So he's not wearing a uniform as, you know, he, if he wanted to, I mean, he's commander in chief, he could wear a uniform with epaulets and, you know, medals and stuff. Um, but he doesn't because he's dressed like the very, very ordinary volunteers, you know, um, who were so important in the first part of the war. Um, so I would say that, you know, and I, I would also say that he, um, uh, you know, I think he, I mean, the, the important thing is to understand why what he does is successful. So, mo you know, he is not a military expert. He's not actually a great economist. He would sell this himself. You know, those aren't his his four days. What he is good at is communicating. And in his case, the communicating his communications work because they're authentic. So um, he, you know, when he makes his, he, you know, that he makes a nightly video every night using his own cell phone. So he makes a little speech into his just five minutes every evening, kind of evening address to Ukrainians. Um, and, you know, so instead of, again, instead of being in a studio with lights and makeup and so on, he makes a phone, you know, a cell phone conversation the way an ordinary pe person would, you know, so, and, and he's dressed, as I said, the way ordinary soldiers are dressed. And so he's kind of telegraphing authenticity and ordinariness. You know, I'm an ordinary guy who has been suddenly swept up in history. Um, and of course, you know, of course, it's thought through and of course, it's, you know, orchestrated, you know, it's a it's a it's a way of doing presenting yourself. But the reason why it's successful is because it's true. <laughs> you know, he is he is an ordinary guy. I mean, you know, he's a he's a guy who came from a completely different profession who finds himself in this extraordinary situation. Um, and so you know, people believe him because because what he says is true. And and I think that the other thing that's important for to understand is that he they he and the people around him spent a lot of time thinking about how to communicate with different audiences. So not just he doesn't just talk to Joe Biden. He talks to Richard Branson. He talks to, um, you know, Bono, who's just driven, by the way, has just drawn the cover for the next Atlantic magazine. Uh, <laughs> he's other many talents besides musical. Um, and, you know, and he and he talks to, you know, he's he's appeared at music festivals and at universities and, you know, and that's all deliberate because he understands that in democracies, um, it's important not just to talk to the leaders, but also to, to the general public. And so when he has the opportunity to do that, um, he, he, he does it. And I think all those things are, again, he he was he was underestimated because his he was described always as a comedian. And he, he and he was more than a comedian. He was a political satirist. You know, he he did satire. And to do satire, actually, you have to have a pretty good understanding of politics. I mean, you have to know what will make your audience laugh. Where are the, you know, what is it? Who, how do people find politicians pompous and so on? So he he had a his his in, his intuitive sense of politics is is pretty good. I'm not, you know, he's he's not a flawless leader and. You know, not everybody loves him. It's worth saying that inside Ukraine. But um, but those skills have turned out to be really important. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit CEIP.org 
slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. Okay, so before we leave uh, Ukraine, uh, I wonder if you could put on your Russia hat just for a minute. Uh, I know you can't see around corners. Um, to ask you what you think the future of Russia is going to be is probably a silly exercise. Just a, an impression. Russia is the what largest country in the world, the ninth or tenth largest economy in the world. It's got 4,500 nuclear warheads. It's clearly not going to disappear. You You gave a lecture at Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute relatively recently, and you indicated that um, you weren't sure, obviously, what the future was going to be. But you did, and you made this point earlier today, that Putin or a Russian leader needs to admit two things. Number one, the war was a mistake. And number two, that Ukraine is an independent, sovereign country. Um, I just wonder, how do, how does that square with your reading of Vladimir Putin? You know, of course, the obvious answer to that question is right now, there's no indication that Putin will concede either of those two things. So, you know, that uh, that's where we are at the moment. Um, the question is, are there political events or um, is there, um, you know, are there actions that Ukraine could take that would make him think differently? And, you know, people people do change and countries do change and they change their policies. And France did pull out of Algeria, despite, you know, in, in an extraordinary turbulent moment, there were assassination attempts against Charles de Gaulle and there was, you know, attempted coup d'etat and, you know, unrest and so on in, in, in France, not, not in, 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 as well as in Algeria, in Algeria. So, you know, so, so people, you know, countries do, do change, you know, Ukraine is a country that's changed enormously. I mean, it's a completely different place from what it was 30 years ago. And so the idea that Russia is somehow exempt from any form of change, you know, that it will always be exactly the way that it is, um, I think is a is a is a misreading of history. Um, and 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 what we should be thinking about is how we encourage change to happen. And the lo- again, back to the war, the logic appears to be that only uh, a dramatic or dynamic success on the battlefield would change calculations. I mean, from my own Middle East experience, you know, I. I could give you two examples uh, of humiliating military defeats. In the case of Gamal Abdel Nasser in 1967 and uh, Saddam Hussein's ejection from Kuwait, which humiliating defeats, which did not lead to any change in calculation. In authoritarian countries, it's uh, changing is obviously a lot more difficult. Let's move on to another, I think, fascinating question, and that is the whole notion of what's the right framing for the United States when it comes to the democracy versus autocracy debate. The president, uh, even on the campaign trail, argued that the struggle for the 21st century is a struggle between democracies and autocracies. I think he had his eye in mind on China. That's understandable because American presidents for decades have framed American foreign policy rightly in terms of defending, promoting democracy. The invasion gave Biden's talking points 
a real clarity. But it's also a very limiting sort of framing, right? Um, is it the most effective organizing principle, do you think, for our foreign policy? I mean, if you're going to, if in if oversimplistically, yes. I mean, I don't think we're in the Cold War. There aren't two blocks of countries that are locked in a, you know, kind of binary battle. Um, even the autocratic camp um, is, is, is loosely connected and is really connected by a web of interests rather than ideology. I mean, the, you know, with you have <coughs> communist China and nationalist Russia and theocratic Iran and Bolivarian, whatever it is, Venezuela, you know, these are, <coughs> you know, these are not countries that have anything in common ideologically. And yet they find grounds for cooperation through, um, you know, they they have they use the same accountants and lawyers in London to, to, to launder their money. Um, they 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 borrow one another's um, surveillance technology. Um, they they use the same propaganda tactics, you know, in um, across borders. Um, and, um, it, you know, and, and, and those are those, I think, are the things that we need to fight rather than the block as such. I mean, we're, you know, there's, there's no, there's no war of, you know, all half the world against the other half the world. Um, what we should be doing is thinking about how do we restrain kleptocracy? Um, how do we, um, how do we combat or even think, you know, think about the, the, the propaganda wars, you know, and, and so on. I mean, and that, that's how I would hope we would focus our, our foreign policy. Um, so, you know, and worrying a lot about which countries fall into which camp, you know, in an era when some of them are, you know, what is India, what is South Africa, you know, um, some of these are one party states now, in effect, um, is, is, a, is, is probably a waste of time. Um, thinking about the mechanisms, what are the mechanisms of autocracy, how do they work and how can we block them? This is this seems to be very important. Right. I'm thinking along more practical lines. <clears throat> what do you do about countries uh, that essentially two thirds of the world's population, I think, live in countries that have not signed on to uh, our efforts to sanction, punish and check Putin's invasion of Ukraine? You know, from Israel to India, you've got countries that are hedging. They have their own interests. Um and not all democracies are the same. I mean, no, of course not. Emmanuel Macron just returned from a trip to China, which has been heavily criticized by some. Um, so all, all democracies aren't the same and don't share the same interests. So I just wonder, and again, I don't have an answer uh, for this. I mean, good analysis often leads to paralysis. Question is, what do we do? Is it... it does our message need to be somehow recalibrated or our tactics in the way we relate to the, this, the hedgers? One of the questions that needs to be asked is who hears our message? Um, you know, the, the, you know, China, the, you know, the, the different, you know, both Chinese companies and the Chinese government um, have bought up, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, and trained a generation of journalists in Africa Um they own media properties all over the continent. Um, you know, the R Russians use RT in the same way. Um, they they use it as a as a kind of tool of Russian foreign policy in Africa. Um, 
we don't really, have, so we're just talking about Africa for the moment. I mean, there's a different conversation you could have about Latin America or Asia, but um, we don't have anything like that. We don't have a response to it. We haven't really thought about it. Um, the people who have tried to work on it or think about it or create are often, you know, um, have, you know, fight against bureaucracy and, and apathy, but also suspicion in order to try and, to try and change that. Um, and so why are we surprised that, you know, our message doesn't get through. I mean, there aren't, there aren't even any, you know, the, there, there is no media that carries it in a lot of places. Um, so, you know, so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that, you know, you know, bewailing the effect of two decades worth of, of, um, you know, again, Chinese and Russian and other investment in, you know, media, you know, it's, it's a bit late. I mean, it, 10 years ago was the time to think about that, not now. I mean, yeah, I mean, we emphasize common values, but very often in statecraft and foreign policy, it's common sense and common interests that seem to trump values. And I, I just wonder, um, this is the second democracy summit that the administration has held in Washington. I just wonder what your view is. In principle, the idea of bringing 120 countries together, uh, although according to Freedom House, some um, some were invited that are not classified as not free. Hungary was not invited, and Hungary is classified by Freedom House as partly free. So in, in a way, we have a definitional problem here, but I think it goes beyond that. I mean, the fight for democracy in the world, how do you, how do you get your arms around? You spent much of your professional life dealing with this question. How do you even begin to get your arms around a set of principles and pragmatic tactics that expand the democratic space, support fledgling democracies, on one hand, uh, our own democratic backsliding notwithstanding. I mean, we're, we're a glass house these days in ways in my lifetime uh, I think we've never been before. And check authoritarian autocratic governments. What's I mean, is it even useful to talk about an overall strategy, given the fact that this is a global problem? One point, one more point, some of the more serious challenges we face in this world, climate, pandemic, cannot be fixed or addressed by democratic polities alone, right? I mean, so those are two different questions. I mean, um, no, um, of course, not all challenges can be addressed by democracies alone, but, you know, when... During the Cold War, and as I say, I don't think we're in a new Cold War, but during the Cold War, we were capable of, you know, chewing gum and walking at the same time. And we, we could talk to the Soviet Union, um, you know, about human rights, and we could also talk to the Soviet Union about arms control, and we could also talk to the Soviet Union about other, um, other world problems. Um, you know, I didn't see why we can't have different levels of conversation with China, just as they have different levels of conversation with us. I mean... Um, so I, I'm not sure that why that has to be a problem. And as for having a strategy, um, again, I'm just repeating myself, but I think by focusing on, you know, not on, um, uh, you know, again, fighting 120 countries at once or whatever, you know, focusing on the systems that enable autocracy, some of which work inside our own country, um, again, kleptocracy, um, the, you know, propaganda, um, you know, the surveillance technology, you know, fo focusing on those things 
um, is, is one of the ways in which we can be the most useful. And actually, the first Democracy Summit did come out with some you know, policy announcements and, you know, other, other, other announcements about, you know, in those spheres. Um, and I think that could be used. Also, you know, there are a lot of things that the U.S. can do, even with a smaller group of allies. I mean, we don't have to, because there is, as you say, there are differences between democracies and there, there isn't such a thing as a democratic bloc, um, just as there's no autocratic bloc. I mean, I don't see why um, we can't work with democracies, you know, some, you know, democracies that want to work with us on um, particularly on eliminating kleptocracy and on, you know, changing um, the rules of the of the of the financial world so that it's harder to launder money, for example, or harder to evade sanctions. Um, so, uh, you know, so I, I, you know, I think you're, you know, you're right that thinking about it is some kind, as I say, some kind of new Cold War makes it hard to um hard to see how we could win it. Thinking about it as a series of discrete tasks and processes and problems, I think, you know, I think we could have a strategy. Uh, I mean, we haven't, we haven't had a strategy for, um, you know, in, you know to, to, to talk about Chinese and Russian um, propaganda and disinformation ever. I mean, I, we still don't have one. Um, you know, there's, there are a few little institutions in Washington that deal with it, including the you know, um, the, you know, the broadcast, the, the sort of um, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, um, there's the National Endowment for Democracy, there are a few things like that, but we don't really have, as a government, a way of thinking in a broad, in a big way about that. I mean, these are things that Russia and China spend millions, if not billions of dollars on every year, um, and we don't have a response, and we haven't had one for a long time. Right. I, I'm just stunned, frankly, by the fact that you have a demonstrable event Russia's efforts to invade a sovereign country and to extinguish its sovereignty, um, despite, you know, uh, where Ukraine fell before the war on the corruption index or or its own uh, undemocratic practices, that this moment doesn't seem to be translating in much of the world as a cautionary tale. And, uh, you know, our own uh, anomaly and inconsistency in our own policies seem to suggest that even we may not be persuaded. I mean, you know, Joe Biden is defending democracy in Ukraine, and yet we're working with authoritarian powers and saying very little about of course, we have to work with authoritarian powers. Well, we're working. As I said, we have to be able to think on different, you know, we have to work with them. Right. But I just, I mean, take the case of Saudi Arabia, for example, a, a country which, uh, you know, whose human rights record reads like a chapter out of Edgar Allan Poe. And despite the administration's efforts to talk about imposing consequences, those consequences are not going to come. We have other interests, presumably, that constrain us. I mean, I'd just like to get your, your own sense um, as, as we near the end of the session. I mean, I, I worked in every administration from Jimmy Carter to Bush 43. None of them, with the possible exception of the Carter administration, made human rights or the promotion of democracy a top agenda item. I mean, we our record on, on intervening to stop mass killing and genocide, responsibility to protect, is a pretty grim record. Um, I served on the Holocaust Memorial Council for two years, and Never again is an extraordinarily powerful slogan, but the reality is in terms of our policy, 
and the international community's policy. It's not never again. It's ever, ever again. So I, I wonder. I, I, sorry, I just you, you, but you, the way you're framing the question makes it sound as if the answer to that is that we should give up, right? We should not talk about these things anymore. Yeah. No, it's try. It's it's number one to realize the gap between our own rhetoric and our action. Number one, and then try to figure out how, in fact, to make the promotion of human rights real. And I, again, I mean, I, I, you know, if you're not prepared to accept anomaly, inconsistency, hypocrisy in American foreign policy, probably shouldn't be involved in American foreign policy. I'm just relating to you my experience over a 25 year period where the United States has talked a great deal more than it's actually done. And I'm not saying that we haven't done anything. We've done a lot. But we end up, you know, we end up, John McCain argued our values, our interests, our interests, are our values. It was a very, it's a very compelling argument. I argued with John McCain on this. I wouldn't, couldn't convince him that that was, in fact, hard to do. But we're witnessing an invasion of Ukraine by another country. Not since World War II have we seen a more dramatic example of this? I, again, I'm, I don't have any. And, and so should we, should we therefore not help you? I don't understand what you're asking. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm simply pointing out that we need to be realistic about our own, about our own behavior and come to try to figure out a way to find the right balance between our interests in dealing with authoritarian powers and uh, our commitment to pushing human rights. And I don't, frankly, I, I don't know if there is a balance during my time in government, there really wasn't. I am sorry, I'm totally confused by what you're asking. So in my, if you're asking is, you know, is the war, what you know, is the, is the war in Ukraine about our interests, or our values, I would say it's pretty clear in this case that it's about both. I mean, we have both a very hard security interest in Russia not dominating Europe and in Russia not threatening NATO countries, okay, just to begin with. Um, we, um, we have a very hard security and economic interest in Russia not using its gas pipelines to, you know, monopolize or, or, or control the European economy, which is our most important partner. Um, at the same time, we have a clear interest. I mean, you can even leave aside human rights if you want. You know, we have a clear values interest in not letting Russia set a precedent for being able to destroy, you know, another member of the United Nations um, with no with impunity. So it seems to me that in the, you know, you can, you know, we aren't talking. If you're talking about this war, which is mostly what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes, um, it's a pretty good illustration of. Um, a foreign policy um, that 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 reflects both our interests and our values and common sense, uh, and so and so I don't think it's a good example of what you're talking about. I mean, you could maybe point to the Middle East, or you could maybe point to other things that the United States has done over the last decade or five decades um, that are hypocritical or haven't worked or have been half-hearted or so on. But this particular story, the invasion of Ukraine, it seems to me is. Um, an excellent place for America to to to, um, to to show what it can do in terms of both defense 
of its values and of its security. No, I, I, I fully agree with what you're saying. All I'm suggesting is as we try to figure out how to promote democracy in a very complicated world, we have to be extremely honest about what we are prepared and what we're not prepared to do with countries that are authoritarian, with, with which we do not share common values, uh, and yet countries that we are going to have to do business with. And frankly, it, it's, not a pretty, it's not a pretty story. Let me ask you one additional question. Poland, it's, a, it's a, a country about which you know a great deal and you care a great deal. Uh, the New York Times Magazine had a facet, I don't know if you saw it this weekend, had a fascinating story on the what they described as the twin challenges, twin wars that Poland is facing. One, its right-wing government's battle with the EU on one hand, and the fact that Poland has emerged as a critical link in any successful prosecution of Ukraine's uh, efforts to combat uh, Russian aggrandizement. Um, how do you find a balance with Poland? I don't know what you mean by how do I find a balance. Um, I am very in favor of Poland's efforts to help Ukraine. And I should say that in Poland, there is a bipartisan, overwhelming grassroots support for those efforts. Right. What do we do about the other half? Yeah, well, the other the other half is that Poland has a is a, is run by a um, increasingly autocratic. It has not got better; it's gotten worse. Uh, increasingly autocratic um, uh, political party, which um, is also you know profoundly corrupt, um, which uses a combination of state media and the prosecution service to run smear campaigns against people inside the country of all you know. Um, which is thinking now very hard about how it's going to cheat in the next elections, which are coming up in October. Um, and, I, and, and that's the other half of the story. And, you know, you have to, as I said, the world is nuanced and complex. And in Poland, you have these two very different fa faces of, of Polish policy. I should say that the, the, the Polish, again, the Polish support for the war came from the ground up. Before the war began, before February of 2022, the current Polish government was very ambivalent about Ukraine. The current Polish ruling party was aligned with the other pro-Russian parties in Europe, you know, with Marine Le Pen's party and so on. Um, and then the it was the influence of ordinary people who literally drove their cars to the border, um, you know, in February to pick up refugees and take them home that 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 pushed them into this fight. Plus, of course, the immediate understanding that if Ukraine fell, the next country in line would be Poland. So there's an obvious, you know, security security issue there. But 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 I but those are, you know, I I, I think all of us are capable of. Um, as I said, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can understand that the 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 heroic Polish support for Ukraine um, and the um, the unpleasantness of the Polish ruling party are, you know. Two different problems or two different issues, right? And and you might argue that one needs to be subordinated to the other at this juncture. I don't know what subordinated to the other means. In other words, I wonder. The Polish foreign minister is here this week. The president has had at least two meetings in Poland. I wonder to what degree he's raised in a, in, a, in any sort of assertive frontal manner. Certainly not publicly. Um, the problem that you my understanding is that he has but of course i don't know that for, you know i wasn't right. in the room right it's just a it's i think it's a really good example of the, the sort of conflicts 
and conundrum that we face. I, I don't see why I don't see why there's a conflict. What we can support Polish efforts in Ukraine, and we can be critical of the behavior of the Polish ruling party. I don't see why that's so hard. Right, and and again, the real question. I, I would only suggest you having written talking points for secretaries of state. I, I wonder exactly how critical it will be. But that's that's to me, it's a demonstration of the problem that we find ourselves in. One last question, if you can. Do you think over the last eight, nine, ten years, our own uh, democratic backsliding has impeded, constrained, or uh, undercut our message? Yes. Abroad? Yes. Flat out, yes. I mean, what, you know, yes. I mean, obviously it has. You know, the, I mean, the, the international reactions to January the 6th were, I've heard from people all over the world how shocking they thought it was and how 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 you know upset they were even even people who are critical of the united states were surprised by it and by you know by the scale of it and of course it under it, you know it's it's terribly undermining to our foreign policy to our image as a country you know maybe even to whether people want to do business with us i don't know right and it's yeah and uh as we go forward it's going to become increasingly i think a, a key ingredient how we you know how we rate sadly uh, i'm afraid in how we relate to the rest of the world and applebaum we thank you so much for for joining carnegie connects i thank you for your honesty uh, and and your clarity and for the work that you do thank you take care thank you for listening to carnegie connects a production of the carnegie endowment for international peace Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash carnegieconnects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.